Welcome back to The Lighthouse Project, a podcast put together by four women who grew up in Scientology and we are here to talk about it. This podcast is presented to you by Children of Scientology, a collaborative effort which aims to be informative about the issues which have affected the youngest members of Scientology. In this podcast, we are going to share stories and information, some details of which may be upsetting or disturbing for listeners, specifically content involving sexual assault, rape, child sexual abuse, and psychological and physical abuse of children. We encourage anyone who has been affected by these types of experiences who wish to talk about it to someone to reach out to a trauma-informed organization in their area. In this episode, we will continue our discussion regarding the trial of Danny Masterson, who is defending three counts of forcible rape charged by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Today, we will be focusing on the testimony of Jane Doe 1 and reading from the court notes provided by Tony Ortega at the Underground Bunker. Jane Doe 1 was born into Scientology, which is also referred to as being a second-generation member. She first met Danny in 1997 in her early 20s and saw him at various events which were attended by mutual Scientologist friends. Jane Doe 1 experienced her first sexual assault by Danny Masterson in September of 2002. Following this incident, knowledge reports were written by her Scientologist friends and this caused a rift in the friendship group. Jane Doe 1 and Danny were not on friendly terms for the next couple of months. However, in this time, Jane Doe 1 received a phone call from Danny, and he tells her that he received his motivator. Now, in previous episodes, we have discussed what a motivator is and the overt motivator sequence. However, I went on to ScientologyHandbook.org to pull some additional information that's relevant to this piece of testimony. It says, when one has received something bad, he also may tend to feel he must have done something to deserve it. The overt motivator sequence is based upon and is in agreement with Newton's law of interaction, that for every action, there is an equal and contrary reaction. The plain law of interaction is that if you have two balls, a red one and a yellow one suspended by strings, and you take the red ball and drop it against the yellow ball, the yellow ball is going to come back and hit the red ball. Jane Doe 1 says, he called me and said he got his motivator, which is a Scientology term. So we're all good now. I can let it go. Mr. Mueller asked, what does that mean? She said, it means to me when you do something bad, something happens to you, so you deserved it. Mr. Mueller says, so he got his motivator, as you understood it, meaning he got what he deserved. And she replied, At that specific time, he had fallen out of a raft while rafting with Ashton Kutcher, and a rock went up his rear, and he had to sit on a donut. And Mr. Mueller says, so this incident with you gave him what he deserved. And Jane Doe 1 says, he was now absolved in his mind. So Jane Doe 1 is anally raped by Danny Masterson, and he then later has this accident where he has an injury to his rear end. And he is calling her to say, hey, you can let it go now. It's all good because the cycle took place that Elrond Hubbard said would take place where I did something bad to you and now I've received something bad because of that. And so it's all squared away and we're all good and now you can let it go. And it's just like, 
how sickening is that? It's just horrible. And there's a lot of pressure going on. You have to understand with this friendship group that are Scientologists and these knowledge reports that are going around and this rift that it's creating and these issues that it's causing. Well, then that next line where he says, when did you see him again? And she says, around December 2002, there was peace made between us to let it go so that he could come to Lisa Presley's Christmas party. So you're right. It definitely caused stress on their friend group. And what's interesting to me, well, and she says that she came to the conclusion that it was the best or the greatest good for the greatest number to just let it go. Not that it had been made right, not even that she accepted that his motivator was sufficient, but that it was the best thing for everyone to let it go. And that's a thing that we're going to come back to over and over again growing up in Scientology. And even if you were a first gen in Scientology, is that you're always required to choose the greatest good and shamed and ridiculed and made nothing of if you don't, if you're too first dynamic oriented or second dynamic oriented or what are being selfish basically by not putting the group ahead of you, by not putting Scientology ahead of you because they're the only one that can help mankind. And it's such a tricky, slippery trap. Just everything points to the greatest good over and over and over. So this reminds me of something that I learned a lot in Scientology. And I think this is a common theme. Well, I know it's a common thing in Scientology because we all learn it. And it's this idea that our personal lives and our bodies are not that important, at least when it comes to Scientology itself. Your immediate life is not sacred or essential. And that gets driven into our minds right from the get-go, from the code of honor, Scientology's code of honor. There are 15 points, but there are two points here. Your self-determinism and your honor are more important than your immediate life. Your integrity to yourself is more important than your body, which I guess looking at them seem okay, but not really. This is drilled into your mind that your body is not important. You are not important. What is most important is upholding Scientology and protecting Scientologists because that is the only thing that's going to save my, mankind, going to save the world. You're constantly reframing your experience and devaluing yourself and constantly thinking that, okay, I mean, I'll speak from experience. I was raped. But I was also told to not say anything for the greatest good because they would upset my grandparents, because it would cause cause rifts within my immediate circle, because it could put my family members who did the abuse in jeopardy. So I had to learn from a very young age, shut up, basically. Go with the flow. You're doing this because you're protecting your church. And that's just a theme that carries on for your entire time within Scientology. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Victoria. I think yeah, to contextualize the greatest good, the second half of that phrase is for the greatest number of dynamics, insinuating right, right that the eight dynamics. And when you are taught about the dynamics, you're sort of taught that Scientology 
is there to help you solve all the problems in all of those dynamics, including like the God dynamic, like spirituality as a whole, right? Which other things can't touch. Scientology is being said to be able to impact all of those pieces. But some of those pieces were even told you can't influence or access without shedding your body first or without just being clear, right? So there's this like element to it where the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics is always going to go back to Scientology takes the priority over everything. And then tack on that your integrity needs to lie with something that would rely on the greatest good for the greatest. It's just the same like power struggle math. It's the same manipulation. It's the same like it is only solving for one thing. It all comes back to Scientology and you are wrong in every circumstance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All roads lead to Scientology. It's true. And the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics is what Jane Doe 1 referred to here. She goes to the Church of Scientology and she was made to look for her part and why this had happened to her. And further reports were made on her for holding a grudge. So this continued this aftermath of the incident. Reports were written on her. And then because she was still saying you know, this thing happened to me, that she was still talking about it. Further reports were made on her. Oh, she's not letting it go. She's holding a grudge. That's, those words are said a couple of times here when she's told to let it go, let it go. She's told that by Danny. She then herself decides that, but only after receiving further handling from the Church of Scientology and further reports being made on her by her friends, essentially. She says she came to the conclusion that it was the best and the greatest good for the greatest number. So the greatest good for the greatest number are dynamics. Scientologists use this to justify pretty much anything. Everything. I can't think of, and yeah, absolutely, everything. can't think of anything it doesn't. And this is the reason, or this is the excuse that mothers provide when they disconnect from their child i've heard this a number of times my friends that i grew up with saying that their own mother said these exact same words to them i have an email from my mother saying those exact same words to me so this is something that is used time and time again and with the utmost of destruction is so destructive and yeah, so the pressure is brought upon her to decide for the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics, which is always ultimately to the benefit of Scientology, because when you're talking about those other dynamics, mankind, the spiritual dynamic, the God dynamic, or the infinity dynamic, shall we say, those are the things that when you're doing Scientology, you're expanding out across to. So the greatest good is always going to be what's in within the aim of Scientology or for Scientology or the furthering of Scientology. So she decides, okay, I'll let it go. And this was to sort of mend this rift between these social groups that were that was going on between Lisa Marie Presley and Danny Masterson and these friendship groups. So there's people that she told at this time about the first incident, about the anal penetration without consent, 
And she tells Lisa Marie Presley, she tells a person named Paige. And what absolutely stunned me is in this second assault, which occurs in April 24, 2003, during the assault, as he is raping her, in the midst of raping her, penetrating her, he's saying to her, you're not going to fucking tell Lisa. You're not going to fucking tell Paige. You're not going to fucking tell anybody. There's obviously this anger and this rage and this punishment. She'd done all these handlings to let it go. And yet she's now being punished again in the worst way. Like she's had no protection, zero protection for her. And this perpetrator has access to her again. Like, and this is just insanity. It is insanity that, yeah, the first sexual assault, her daring to speak about it, it's going to get even by a second. That next section where Mueller is asking her, did the names that he was saying during this second assault mean something to you? And she says, he's still mad that I told Lisa about what he did in September because we shook hands and buried the hatchet, blah, blah, blah. Back in the day, Lisa used to utilize the president's office like Danny is here, where if you disagreed with her or wrote her up for something that she did that was out of ethics, you would get drawn into the president's office, like being called in front of the principal. So it's funny that there's she used that same opportunity or tactic back then but what i love now is that he's upset because lisa banned him from coming over to parties at her house and so even though she did participate apparently in helping to try and silence jane doe one by talking her out of going to authorities or handling it through internal justice only she still asserted some justice of her own on the side and was true and loyal to her friend and that that you know really mental at yeah. me that she still had some heart there there's also so much to be said for how much structure in scientology is created to uphold white male privilege and what that means for someone like danny masterson to feel vindicated in this sense of rage that like already as sort of white men tend to have the privilege to to be told that they are capable of anything and that anything is within reach and that the sort of the world is theirs kind of concept there's also this sense of deep resentment and anger and retaliation when that is met with any kind of like scrupulation and so to be able to say those kinds of things you're not going to fucking tell anybody is something that could be a thousand percent justified by him going to see an ethics officer and telling him, oh, I said these things because she's not supposed to be talking to people about it. And ultimately, it will only be him that is defended. And so, yeah, there's just this like there's this experience of the American white male culture anyway, and the way that it is fueled by Scientology. I mean, we already know the extreme misogyny and, you know, Anyway, it's just that kind of pent-up rage is really, really dangerous and is really, really fueled in Scientology. 
it's almost like this triumph of I won, you were silenced because ultimately that's what happened. That's what was brought to bear on her. Like you were saying, Amanda, the church here is fully in operation with the perpetrator and reinforcing on the victim the silencing and this domination. It's not a game to Scientology. This is a deadly matter because it means money. It means gross income. It means PR. They're not playing a game with you. But I think with Danny, <laughs> I get the impression that he is. This is a game I will win. I will show you kind of a thing. And back to Lisa Presley, she did the same thing. It was like being drawn into the president's office and punked. That was the temperature. And we didn't take it seriously. And she thought it was hilarious. And I think that the president was just kind of coddling her, bringing us in and making us say we were sorry and we didn't mean what we said and we would take responsibility. And do you want them to do amends? No, no, it's okay. You know, that's enough. And then we would trot out. So it feels a little similar to me, this dynamic of coddling the VIP. But Scientology means business in it because it, you know, he's a VIP to them. It's bad PR for them. It's bad exposure. And so they are serious about wanting to squash a victim like Jane Doe won here. It's certainly a power play and an institution enforcing that power onto other people and the perpetrator in this case utilizing that power through that institution. It's just, you know, you can start to see what these victims were up against. So the next day after this second assault, Jane Doe One describes waking up in its daytime. She's still disoriented, trying to understand what had happened. She comes downstairs and Luke Watson is there. Luke Watson was the son of the president, celebrity setcher. So Jane Doe One says, Luke, I need to ask you something. And Luke says, no. Don't say anything. You're going straight to Cece, which is the celebrity center. Luke says, Danny's already been there. You're ordered to go straight to the president's office. Jane Doe one says, I just want to ask you one question. Luke says, no, Danny's already been there. I took him. I'm taking you straight there. He orders a taxi for her and he gives the taxi driver the instructions to go to celebrity center. But she gets in and she goes to Bree's house, which is where her her stuff is to go on her trip to Florida. And Mr. Mueller asks, when you got back, so when she got back from that trip to Florida, did you report what happened to anyone at the church? Jane Doe One said, yes, I did, to Julian Swartz. Mr. Mueller asked, who is he? Jane Doe One said, the person I was assigned to, the person in control, almost like a para-police department he was in charge of. I was under his supervision, so even if I was going to Florida for a week, he had to agree to it. I was under a program called OT eligibility. Mr. Mueller asked, under his supervision, does that mean with regard to all activities in your life? Jane Doe One said, there's no boundaries. There's none. I can't say I don't want to talk about it. There's no privacy. All of your life, particularly the more sensitive stuff, that would be his wheelhouse. I hope we can cover this at a later date. But when we're talking about boundaries and privacy in Scientology, you know, People that choose Scientology, first-generation people, slowly through indoctrination, give up one boundary, 
and then the next boundary, and then the next boundary until they have none. But when you're raised as a child in it, you're developing with no boundaries. And that is such a tricky thing to resolve in later years after leaving to try and understand what a boundary is. Practice using them. It's so uncomfortable and so foreign and so strange, you know, and they stigmatize having any privacy. They stigmatize having any boundaries as hiding mm. crimes, withholding. And so you become, my mother did, and she's a first gen. She would tell on herself constantly. It's like she couldn't, she couldn't hold a thought in her head without telling everyone, especially if it was a bad thought. She just had to announce it to everyone. And I just, it was mortifying. But I understand how that came to be. I never did that. I, I was able to find some sense of privacy in myself, which made me kind of build walls and not be authentic with people. But it's what I had to do. That was a coping mechanism that I had was to keep stuff inside because I didn't want to give up myself, my privacy and all my boundaries. And so it's interesting. Some people went full, you know, tilt the other way. And some people interiorized or but yeah you're internalizing everything and you're introverting because you're just trying to keep some sense of a boundary it's important to me to distinguish that that's not by accident i think that's a really good point christy so jane doe one said that she met julian swartz in his office at the los angeles location he was in a building called the advanced organization we always called it ao it was a blue building. So this is AOLA. When Jane Doe One goes to see Julian Swartz, she tells him, Danny raped me. Julian Swartz then closes the door. He had a tiny room, no windows. He closed the door behind him. He said, we don't say that word. I told him what I knew happened. I told him, I don't know what to do. He asked me who I told and started grabbing books, red volume, green volume. He put them down and this little kit and sat down. So he pulls out this demo kit, which is little pieces of things. And commonly you'll have this in a course room on the table and it will be a little plastic basket that contains things like a paper clip, a rubber band, a symbol, some wood blocks maybe. And the purpose of it is to move the pieces around to demonstrate your understanding or to work out a concept. And that provides you an understanding in the physical universe. So it's not just theoretical in your mind, what you're reading, but you can actually apply that concept and see it in front of you and move the pieces around. I feel like in Scientology, it's more to prove to someone else mm -hmm. that you understand the concept, right? Did you ever do demos for yourself or was it on a checkout? I've done checkout. both personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I was encouraged to do yeah. that as part of it. Yeah, I have the definition. A demo kit or a demonstration kit is a collection of various small objects such as corks, bottle caps, paper clips, pen tops, rubber bands, etc. The objects are used to demonstrate something in order to help show that you understand it. Mm -hmm. Show that you understand it. Wow. And it's two things because it comes from Elwood Hubbard's study technology and there's the three barriers to study. 
And one of them is lack of mass, which means that you don't have enough in the physical universe to see it, to bring about full understanding. So especially when you're reading a lot of like theoretical stuff, it helps to, this is Owen Hubbard's teaching, that it helps to bring out into the physical universe and demonstrate it and you can work it out as you go. So it's two things. It's something that you would do for yourself to prevent this barrier to study. And then secondly, it's a way that someone can see that you understood it, where you can work out that concept. She also mentions clay demonstration as well, which is similar in the reason why you're doing it. For those two reasons, you do it for yourself, but you also do it so someone can check your understanding. And the difference is, is that you're using clay, like modeling clay. It's like soft clay. It, it stays relatively soft. Sometimes you just get there. It's the, they had a table, the clay demo table. And sometimes you get there and you're just like, oh, you got to warm up this like right it's on clay. your fingernails. You're so stupid. You get, that's so stupid. So stupid. You stupid. Dad. Ugh, crazy. So, and in that case, you're putting together a scene or maybe you're defining a word or a concept and you will put labels on each of the pieces as to what they are. And then the supervisor will come over and check it and make sure you got it right. <laughs> Can I just add, and this is a whole tangent and I'm not going to go off on it, but I'm just going to say that I feel like all of these things are to say this thing that doesn't make sense. We need you to show 100%. us that it makes sense to you and that you get it verbatim. Even though it's yeah. crazy town, please show us that you fully accept this thing yeah. enough into your soul. That is such that a great point. Show Christy. us that thing that we know that you've been indoctrinated deeply enough that you can carry on and go off into the next thing that we're going to. That's exactly right. I mean, that's I didn't even think that's exactly about that. right, but that yeah. makes complete sense. And now I'm even angrier. <laughs> I sometimes like to imagine okay. my 16 year old self who started in a community college as part of like a high school completing program. And I'd like forged all the paperwork from some local high school because I had never gone to a real school. I had always gone to some homeschool group that had all, only all the Scientology kids that I knew, which there were only like 20 of us. So. And I went to a college classroom for the first time and had no idea what a syllabus was. And I always like to imagine like 16-year-old me coming into a classroom and some professor explaining some complex theory and me being like, I don't get it at all. Could I do a clay demo for you? I could totally explain this complex political economy theory. If you had a bunch of clay and maybe like a box of paper clips, I could really make this happened mm -hmm. uh very silly anyway sorry oh my gosh okay the other thing i'm just wondering about too is like if you can take that concept that owen hubbard has presented and then you put it into the physical universe through a demo kit which is the various objects or a clay demonstration it's almost as if well, you then can't deny that it's true. Like, in a way, like, I feel like there's a brain. There is, you're mapping it. You're, you're mapping it. You're creating a You're mapping truth. it and proving it. Yeah. And then later, they'll hold you to that thing that you proved to yourself, mm -hmm. you know? And if you can demonstrate that to yourself, you can create a scene where that takes place. It, it becomes a truth then. What is true is what's true for you. 
And you really only get there after being forced to read multiple pages in a row without stuttering, without sneezing, without any kind of reaction to indicate that you don't have another different kind of flag you're supposed to follow in ways to learn. And so if you get flunked in something like a clay demo, you sometimes have to go back to these situations that will last an hour or a few with a course supervisor who's trying to explain something to you that doesn't make sense. I feel like you're constantly put into a trance. Yes. Like you're just always in a trance state because you're exhausted. Nothing makes sense, but you're trying to make things make sense. And you're just, you're spinning your wheels and going insane. (laughs) And you get this like release of dopamine when someone finally tells you, oh, see right there, you got it. And even if you don't really understand it, it feels so much better than being forced to sit there in a trance and repeat yourself over and over. So you figure out how to get out of session. What the EP is, you figure out how to complete things on your check sheet and past story checkouts and stuff. I think it's the same phenomenon, you know, how to reduce pain and get to the next carrot or whatever. That's true. And it's like pursuit through resistance. And the supervisor will never explain a concept to you. They don't explain anything. It'll be pointing to the sentence and say, well, what is it return say? Return to your material. What does LRH exactly. say? Return to your materials. And then you read that sentence again and you say, well, I still don't get it. Okay. Is there an earlier word that you did not understand? There must be a prior confusion to this. So that's why you don't understand this part. So then you have to go back. And it's like, again, it's like, it, this all sounds familiar. This over sequence where you got to go back and find where it's your fault and go back and back. And then here you have, well, so you can't understand if you can't, you know, stuff this down and make this work for you. Well, you need to restudy this and you need to find out the words that you didn't understand because there's something that you don't understand at the bottom of this. Eventually what you'll get to is an acceptance, whether that's a full acceptance or a partial acceptance. And what I found when I was doing, because I did the student hat, now prior to that, I was really great at reading. It was my one certain talent and skill was to read really well, quickly, and to understand what I read. But I did the student hat, and it was after that, my studying. While I was on the student hat, I slowed down. But from that point on, I was worse and worse and worse throughout the rest of my studies in the CR. And I had that same phenomenon, that anatin, that going unconscious. And to the point where leading up to a few months before I was leaving the CR, so like six months before I say, I couldn't read a sentence of Howard Hubbard without nodding off. Like it was craziness. I couldn't, the, the whole page blurred. I was getting word cleared on every single word. And anyways, I know that's, yeah, that's a whole thing. But the study technology is coming into play, this brainwashing aspect, this enforcement to understand. And this is what Julian Swartz is doing to her. He is just hammering this in, getting her to demonstrate that she understands. These really these scary concepts, though, these really truth. scary concepts that are threats, basically. That's exactly right. So he's not just reminding her. He's not going through this thing saying, please, you know, demo to me you know, reporting to the authorities or demo to me for a game. 
he's making her consult her understanding about what Scientology will do, what the expectation is and what the consequences are. So he's getting her to demonstrate the real threat that she has coming at her. That's so true, Christy. So Jane Doe 1 describes having to study certain policies directed by Julian Swartz, then having to model them out in clay to prove that she understood them. He would point at them, then handed me a box and say, demo that for me. That box has little trinkets in it. Demoing it, proving you understand the concept. In Scientology, it's really common. Mr. Mueller asked what section he wanted you to demo. Jane Doe 1 said this part about not reporting to civil authorities. Mr. Mueller asked, did you have an understanding of that before? Jane Doe 1 says, completely. So remember, she's born and raised in Scientology. Mr. Mueller said, at this time, when you were meeting with him, Julian Swartz, what was already your understanding about reporting to law enforcement? Jane Doe 1 says, that you absolutely cannot. And I was telling him I wasn't going to do that. I wanted to know what to do. And he kept saying, demo this for me. And he made me break down if I reported Danny that it would suppress him to practice Scientology. If he was in jail or in prison, he can't practice Scientology. So this is that line, suppression of a Scientologist. This is covered in that policy. Mr. Mueller asks, and so you had to demonstrate that to him using the trinkets in the box? Jane Doe 1 said yes. The worst possible thing that could ever happen to another human is that they cannot practice Scientology. It's worse than death. And you're committing that crime against them. So actually, you are the perpetrator here, not them. Okay, so Mr. Mueller asks her, when you were in Julian Swartz's office, did you have to prepare any kind of report with regard to what happened on April 25? Jane Doe 1 said, yes, more than one. First one was a report to my... PC folder. It was just me reporting to the case supervisor what I'd experienced, what I remembered, what I was saying to him, what I went through. Mr. Mueller asked, what was the other report? Jane Doe 1 said, that was later. Before that report, I had to do an OW write-up and he assigned me the condition of confusion. Mr. Mueller asked, were you confused about what had happened to you? Jane Doe 1 said, not at all. I just wanted to interject that a PC folder is pre-clear folder, and that's where your therapy, counseling, auditing, all the notes of, like, detailed notes, verbatim, basically, as close as they can, shorthand to every single thing that you say originate, manifest in a session. They take those notes. They send it off to someone called a case supervisor. That person diagnoses and analyzes whether the auditor did all the right steps and whether you said the right things and then also will write a plan for your next session. The ethics folder is where all of your ethics handling and reports, knowledge reports, things that shouldn't be reports go. And those things are typically actionable, meaning you can be you can experience justice for them. So one, the PC folder is considered spiritual and the ethics folder is justice. And so the difference between these things that they're talking about was she wrote a report for her PC folder that went to the case supervisor or her auditor. And then these other reports she's writing are ethics reports. Exactly right. And it's important to take note of because 
so much about Scientology is keeping records of things that will be used against you in the future. So the the conditions for anyone who isn't familiar are sort of states of being assigned to you according to your relationships with others or your relationship to the church. And the condition that is being referenced, the condition of confusion, is the lowest condition. So there are upper conditions where you're in, you know, decent standing with this person or this organization. There are lower conditions, and this is the lowest condition under several others. So it's defined as, from ScientologyCourses.org, in a condition of confusion, the person or area will be in a state of random motion. When something is random, it's uncontrolled and unplanned. And in a condition of confusion, there will be no real production, only disorder or confusion. In order to get out of confusion, a person has to find out where he is. So the formula that they define for confusion, meaning sort of how you get out of this particular, you move up the scale in your conditions, is, is just plainly find out where you are. So it's so vague. And most of the solutions to the conditions are things that are vague that require you to dig and dig and dig internally until someone else decides that they are worthy solutions. Do you remember how was, young you were when you first did this? And it's find out where you are. And you're like, yeah, I'm in the living room. Mm -hmm. I think I was like, I don't know. I just think I was eight. Just sitting at the table. Probably. Yeah. 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 And I would be funny. more confused once I started doing it. Exactly. <laughs> like I was not confused before, but now I don't know where the hell I am. So much of this was drilled into my head, you know, that when I read some of these descriptions now, I'm like, wow, this is just gibberish. It comes back to the exact same thing of figure out what you have to say so that you can validate that you've done the thing. Yeah, because you so said you can it. You convinced yourself. Thing. Well, they would never say you convinced yourself, but it, it's, you know, it came out of your mouth. So it must be true. What's what is true is what's true for you. And if you have said this, so it says, you know, find out where you are is the formula for confusion. And then it says, note, it's important that the person who was in confusion be cleared up on the definition of confusion. You do this before the formula itself is started. So you look up the definition for the word confusion, and then you answer this very simple question. Find out where you are. <laughs> it provides some additional definitions. It actually has a whole sort of page that are multiple definitions of Who the word knew? confusion you as designed define. designed by Scientology. Yeah. When you can define confusion in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Only in Scientology. <laughs> can I... I just want to insert, and I hope that we can yes. come back and do an episode just on this because it's kooky crazy town. But as Amanda mentioned, the condition that he just assigned her, he decided for her that she was at the lowest condition that there is possible in the history of conditions in Scientology, which is confusion. Above that, oh my God. reason, betrayal after trust. So imagine what's going through your mind. I just said someone raped me. I've been told. I am that you're confused and you're lower than treason. And above that is the doubt formula, which means you're not sure which group you want to be a part of, right? 
And, and then above that is the condition of liability, which is that you can't be trusted. That you, that you are literally a liability. Yeah. Exactly. All of these conditions that we're talking about, these lower conditions, say that you've ceased being simply non-existent as a team member and you've <laughs> now taken on the color of an enemy. She's the enemy here because she was raped and she reported it. And then it's a liability to have such a person unwatched as the person may do or continue to do things to impede, stop the forward progress of the organization. That person cannot be trusted. That's what she's being told here. And she knows this because she grew up doing I'll also say that there is an element to this that is used as part of manipulation as well, which is to say, you know, takes on the color of, right? Doesn't say becomes the enemy. So it takes on the color of, and that's used as leverage when you are in a conversation with someone where you're trying to figure out what this really means to say, like, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person, but Mm -hmm. you're starting to look like you might be having some impure thoughts over here. They're giving you a little wiggle room. Yes, and the, the everything when it comes to your conditions is about reflecting on your internal self and the kind of language used by ethics officers or people that are there to sort of assist you with this process is that, you know, the answer is within you and you kind of just have to lean into to the best parts of yourself and you're just not being yourself right now. You're in a valence or you're, you know, just outside of yourself in some way. Exactly. So find mm-hmm. Because as the code of honor, <laughs> it all stipulates. comes full circle. Mm-hmm. Here we are again. And I think as well, this assigning condition of confusion, I mean, exactly. is just the epitome of what gaslighting is? Gaslighting mm-hmm. is to make the other person believe in some way that they might be going crazy that they are not you know a full person that they're not a whole person there's something wrong with them they misremembered it they might be making something up they might be seeing something that's not there it's this really breaking down of a person's confidence which can be completely debilitating and you have to understand she's already had this gaslighting training her whole life this whole lead up to this. So there's already been this huge breakdown over time. And, you know, where a person is trying to gaslight somebody else, they're saying, you're crazy. Julian Swartz says to her, you're confused. I'm going to label you a confused person. Here's a condition of confusion because you don't know where the fuck you are. You're just so far gone, so confused. You don't even know where you are. So figure that out first before you come at me with these wild stories that someone did this to you. So she really had to do a lot of internal work. Like you said, Amanda, like the conditions are very internal, you know, self-focused type action. So initially she reports to her PC folder, as Christy described very well in in that that's a personal thing right it's for her it's it's based on her experience then she has to write over it some withholds which is again a very personal thing for her and it's also figuring out the things that she's done what over has she done what is she withholding so all of this is really focused on her her own behavior and what she did wrong and then now she has to work her way up through the conditions 
And then the liability formula, as Christy described those various conditions as you work your way up, in the liability, you're asking to re-enter the group at the end of that. So you have to make amends and then you have to sort of make a plea to say- How humiliating. Hey, I think I'm good enough now. Do you accept me back? <laughs> right. And so you you started at a point and through this whole process, you've had to twist and maneuver yourself and, you know, stuff these concepts, demonstrate them out. It's like all this work gets done on her to change what she thinks about her own experience. So- I want to really sort of make that really well understood because then the next thing is then she writes the knowledge report about Danny Masterson. So you have to understand that all of this stuff took place before she even writes this particular knowledge report. So I'll just read it from her own testimony. Mueller asks her, did you do another report? Jane No One said, a knowledge report. After I went through the condition of confusion, he had me do that report. She describes doing a confusion report that was rejected. So that means that she did the confusion condition and she didn't put a satisfactory answer. So then she gets sent back to redo it. So again, it's like this retraining. So she actually came up with an answer. I think I'm here. That was the answer to the, you know, the question was, where are you? And so she's like, she describes, I think I'm at this place. And then he says, no, you're not. You didn't even know where you are. Again, it's just hammering this in. So it gets rejected. She goes back. She does the work. She's working through the conditions. Finally, it meets their approvals and she gets through it. Now she can write this knowledge report. Mr. Mueller asks, was that done in the presence of Julian Swartz? Jane No One says, yes, it took multiple nights. We would start working on it after 10 p.m. each night. So I'm gathering from this, she's on services and if she's doing the evening session, and it usually finishes 10 or 10.30. So then this is in her after time outside of her studying or services time. They're then doing this one-on-one. Jane Doe one says, in regards to the report, it can't open up with or at any point use the word rape. I had to write it as though I was completely responsible for anything that had happened to me. Nothing happens to you that you did not create. That's a belief. Mueller asks, did you initially use the word rape? Jane Doe one says, I didn't. He made it clear it wouldn't be in there and I couldn't include anything criminal. There was a part I wrote that I had wanted to shoot Mr. Masterson because remember there was a gun involved in this bedside drawer next to the bed where she reaches for it. Mueller asks, why did you feel that way? Jane Doe one said, when I reached for the gun, that's how I felt. He told me that wasn't possible, that Mr. Masterson doesn't have a gun. If you write that, you're going to shoot him. I can't help you. So he's saying what you're going to be writing is false because that gun does not exist. Like, even though like, he, I know what it exists because I reach for it. Even though he literally so posted a picture of it on his like, personal Instagram. Oh, my God. <laughs> literally. Oh, my God. But she, she's, she's admitting to something horrific. I, in that moment, I wanted to shoot him, and instead, he's denying. Yeah. The and how and saying, do you know to defend the fact that he doesn't own a gun? Mm-hmm. How do you know that? Because that, that would, would be, be criminal. illegal. That would be criminal. Um, the so couldn't have happened. The idea of her having been, having gone through this in, incredible trauma, and then every all the fallout of it, mm. gone through additional trauma. The next morning, without warning, being sent by her abuser 
to then be in a forced confessional to then have to be gaslit rejected on her right yes to be gaslit into a confessional and then be forced to i mean she's basically just saying like two plus two is five like it's she's being forced to say two plus two equals five yeah it's just crazy also, too, in the way that it happened, that she woke up to be told that Danny right. had already mm-hmm. been there and laid the groundwork. She's Ugh. coming in after the fact. He, he would have knows. had to know. I mean, just up. anyway, anyway, anyway. Right. And what Julian Swartz is sort of warning her about is like, you say there's a gun. I'm telling you there's not a gun. You put it in there. I can't help you. And Mr. Mueller asks, would there have been consequences for that? And Jane Doe 1 describes that there's a false report report that can lead to expulsion. It was pretty serious. He said it was being crafted for other people in the organization. And I was to leave out anything that might be a legal truth. An acceptable truth is what they call it. Something that doesn't bring the attention of law enforcement. So... You know, there's obviously a mission of anything that could be further incriminating or would carry further or harsher. Well, and that was a huge premise being raised on what an acceptable truth was, what was out reality, what was fair roads for weather. Like we were taught to only talk about things that were okay, that made Scientology look okay, and never venture outside to something that would be out PR or raise a red flag. So here again, she needs to stick with acceptable truths. And she would have understood that being a second generation member and growing up in Scientology. Like I grew up within the Sea Org and I obviously had an understanding, a very good understanding of that. But I had less interaction with the outside world. Whereas I imagine for a child growing up, you know, in Scientology where they're attending school, they're, you know, they're socializing with relatives or friends that are not Scientologists. And I think that this would be really drilled in. And I think you get you guys you get more practiced at it when that. you're in the WOG world, in the outside world, when you're not in the Scientology bubble. But it still takes a lot of practice, but it does become second nature. And like Miriam, you were telling the story about getting arrested and your very first instinct was to lie to the police about your situation. Because your very, very first instinct, yeah. your base instinct is to defend Scientology and protect Scientology. That literally, I mean, think about teaching that from children. That's just cults 101 on. and extreme groups. You protect your group. You're loyal to them, Friston. Mm. Right. And the other thing that was really drilled into us was keeping Scientology working. It's like mankind's, you know, humanity and their our future you know our whole future every man woman and child on this planet completely depends on what we do here and now and it's like this huge weight on your shoulder that even as a child you're super aware of that it's like you think if you say the wrong thing that's damaging Scientology therefore damaging the future of mankind therefore bringing upon the destruction of the world and humanity and it's like it's just like this whole huge broader idea that you have so of course yeah you're gonna lie to lapd you're gonna lie to your aunt margaret or whoever you're going to lie to the teacher at school 
Well, eventually even lie to your parents about what's happening to you. But yeah, welcome to putting KSW, Keeping Scientology Working, at the very front of every single course. Talk about drilling in some indoctrination. Um, Just, it's so wild to me now being a parent. I want my sweet little five-year-old daughter to worry about riding her scooter and playing with her friends and sprinklers and like watching funny shows or whatever. Imagine like being a child in your whole world is literally on your shoulders. Like you're worried about mankind and doing the right thing and saying the right thing. And you can't do this, can't do that. But there's just no, that just make, it just breaks my heart thinking about all the kids. Asshole. I'm sure there's other yeah. kids that do cults, high control groups, whatever. Yeah, so there is no childhood. Absolutely. They just rip it away from you. Rip it away from you. It's gone. It's not mm-hmm. a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even if you are a child, you are a child Next of God and need to serve accordingly, right? Like, it's, oh, it's so awful. No, I, I think about that a lot. This, like, insane pressure, you know, again, like, I think that a rural org experience is it is just a different kind of experience. It really felt to me like it was my responsibility. I mean, every neighbor I ever met got the first time that I greeted them, got a way to happiness pamphlet. Every, you know, all my weekends were spent doing park cleanups and food drives and, you know, volunteering for all these organizations. And at the end of every organization volunteer party, we got a picture collectively because we all had to, right? Like you felt so sad for the rest of the world because you felt like it was your responsibility to save them. And it was it was so alienating, never getting a chance to bond with, you know, kids. Even when you did, I, I mean, there were countless friends that I made where we would hang out a couple of times and then they would disappear. My parents could never explain to me why we wouldn't hang out with them again. And it was mostly because then all of a sudden my parents started preaching Scientology to them or we started asking the kids at, you know, five, six and seven, like, do you want to come to my church? It'll be so fun. Yeah. yeah. It's sad. That is sad. I was going to say that coupled with a sense of urgency, like the world is going to end at any time. It like there it there was always in every event, it's like it this is happening. It's happening right now. It's up to us. We have to save mankind. Like the, there's just uh, yeah, just sense of oh my god. Yeah. This is our last chance. You're the only hope. Yeah. I wasn't around for it, but there was this policy called five years, which came and went. Yeah. Which is hilarious to me now. <laughs> but there's only five more years left. We have You know, to, that like, sounds familiar now. The planet within the mm-hmm. next five years. This is it. Like he actually put a time frame on it. I found it for somebody once. They were like, Where's the five years policy? And I searched and searched and I finally found it. And I'll and I'll pull it up. And if I find it, I'll put it a link to it. But it basically was saying yeah. mankind has five more years left on this earth. And so every single so back to KSW, every single thing that you do, every action, every decision you make matters. Better sell those books. Buy your basics. Five more years. They decided to put a deadline on it to really ramp up this pressure that you're talking about on people, on children, so that you would join the sewer, so that you would go up the bridge as fast as you could, so that you would disseminate to your neighbor, so that you would buy a new library, so that you would sacrifice your college education, so that you would not want to become a ballerina. 
because the world is, you know, it's, I guess all these doom and gloom cults are the same. They want to put a time clock on it. And that's where we'll close off today in terms of Jane Doe One's testimony. You know, this portion of the testimony, I feel like really focus on the ethics handlings that she experienced and ethics in Scientology is a personal matter. So this means that the focus is on her and what she could do to take responsibility and the things that she had done wrong and then doing the conditions, which included starting from confusion. And what we will see come together in the next episode as we further detail Jane Doe One's testimony is where Scientology becomes more heavily involved in her case and bringing pressure to bear on her to prevent this from going any further. And this is done through Scientology's justice actions. And we're going to dive into each one of those ones that she's experienced. And so that's what we'll be talking about next time. For information, support, and advice regarding sexual assault, the largest national helpline in the U.S. is RAIN. That's R-A-I-N-N. Their website is www.rainn.org. You can speak with the trained staff member via the online chat or call their free helpline, 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. Thanks, everybody, for sharing your stories and just being vulnerable and honest. It's really important that we connect. It also helps others connect and share our truth. And I know that it it feels really wonderful to be able to talk to each of you about these experiences. So thank you for sharing. And then we want to thank all of you listeners for your time today and for chatting about these issues with us. And we look forward to continuing talking about this at our next episode. As always, please, please, please check in with yourselves. This is a, a super lengthy and complicated case. And these are really intense stories that really take some time for us to process and for others as well, whether you are experiencing your own, dealing with your own trauma or having some stress in your own life. Just make sure that you're taking really good care of yourselves. We appreciate anyone who has followed our Children of Scientology page on Facebook. You can follow us there and look for updates, not just based around this podcast, but based around some of the other goings on in the second gen Scientology community and with cult survivors. And the best way to support the work that we do is just to like and subscribe and follow our channels. We are at Children of SCN at Instagram, Children of Scientology on Facebook, and this is the Lighthouse Project. So share with your friends and we'll see you soon.